Uh, as I mention all the time during the Green Sundays, and that's what we're in now, uh, the, the subject of the sermon uh, is about the, the, the nature of discipleship, but also the Green Sundays have been understood to be uh, the time for teaching. So from the pulpit, we talk about various subjects that are uh, at least the preacher thinks important moving forward. Remember this too, I don't say this often enough. When the English Reformation occurred and Anglicanism emerged as a distinct expression of the, the Western Christian faith and life, uh, as it emerged, it began to understand something because we did not emphasize the power and importance of the confessional, that is to say, auricular confession. We talked about its importance. Even Luther uh, spoke about the necessity from time to time. But the confessional was the location in the Western church often for some species of spiritual direction to the penitent. And so it has, was supplanted in Anglicanism by the sermon the sermon was understood to be, among other things, an instrument of spiritual direction. So it would surprise you to know, by the way, that there were sermon discussion groups uh, in the uh, classical Anglican period of the 17th century by some very uh, evangelical and reform-minded Anglicans like Richard Baxter and Bunyan, who on the evening would have a sermon discussion uh, after the Sunday on the sermon that he preached. So it has something to do with that as well. Today I want to speak about the two parables that I just read to you from Mark's Gospel to precede that by saying something about Mark's Gospel uh, and uh, some of the details about this. And then to see what is involved here. What's involved I'll just give it away initially, is how we understand the processes of God. How we understand the processes of God at work in the community of faith, in the wider world, and in each of us. And so we'll see that one of the parables, or both of them, have something to do about process. Mark's gospel is the earliest of the gospels. I'm kind of conservative about biblical criticism, and so my dating of Mark would be probably around 65. Some people put it later, like 70 or 75, but I think it's early. And that means it was before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, and that's very important in terms of history. But Mark's gospel is urgent. And Father Cockrell reminded us at the sermon discussion, if you read it in Greek, the original, uh, you'll see that he never speaks, uh, writes in the past tense. It says, he goes, he does. So it, it's spoken in the present tense. So there's a very uh, great sense of urgency. Mark's gospel is the shortest of the gospels. It probably was finished, that is to say, polished editorially in the city of Rome in about 65, and the audience for the gospel initially was what we now call Jewish Christian. Mark's gospel, as I said, is the shortest, and uh, in the best manuscripts, there is no resurrection appearance. 
So the gospel ends with the women running away from the empty tomb. And so the reader is to uh, make a decision about what happened, right? The tomb's empty, they run away, and it says they were afraid. What are the implications? So moving forward for the Christian faith and life, you know, what is the significance of the empty tomb? So that means all of the add-on at the end of chapter 16 is not in the best manuscripts, and it's unfortunate because there are a lot of people in Appalachia who are handling snakes and drinking poison, and uh, it doesn't come from the best manuscripts. You know, you don't have to do that. And it isn't a sign of the presence of the Holy Spirit that you can handle a big rattlesnake, right? And you'll be protected. doesn't matter. So, we have two parables in Mark's Gospel. Both of them, uh, Jesus speaks of the kingdom of God is like this. And he talks about uh, a farmer who sows the seed. And he goes to bed and he gets up and he, he begins to see uh, the, the, what he's sown grow. He sees it at all the stages, right? He sees it sprouting and then he sees it getting to be a bigger and more mature plant. And finally it comes to fruit, its maturity. And he harvests it, he puts the sickle in. Whenever you read the parables of Jesus, there are three things that always must be considered. What did Jesus mean when he spoke it? What did the early church or the Christian disciples who heard him say this understand it to mean moving forward? And how do you and I understand it? And, and the other question that we want to ask ourselves is, does this parable have any application to our lives today? You know, I forgot to mention this. It's slightly off the subject, but I don't want to let it go. I, I'm not preaching, obviously, about the first reading from 1 Samuel. Uh, but there's a very interesting line in there that is the subject of Episcopalian, a subject for Episcopalian 101, but I'll just mention it uh, briefly. And that is that it says that God was sorry that he had picked Saul to be the king. He regretted it. So there are a lot of people who understand the providence of God or God's activity both in the world and in our own personal lives to be omnipotent, omniscient, and immortal. Right? And here God is sorry. It's another anthropomorphizing passage in the Hebrew Bible. You know, God walking in the cool of the as we talked about last week. And God is regretting this. In fancy theology, that would have something to do with the passability of God. You know, what that might mean. Is God sorry? And does God regret this? I like to read this to understand because it also says in other places that God can change his mind. Don't you hope that? 
that God can change his mind. So I'll say this again later, but remember what I say all the time. When God's judgment, which is real, when God's judgment and God's mercy collide, God's mercy trumps God's judgment. And there is ample biblical support for this. This isn't Brewer making it up. Right? So when we talk about the processes of God, we need to build that in to some degree. But we're back to the farmer who watches this and is ignorant of the processes. Uh, A week ago, Wednesday, I went back to my former parish in Sausalito to preach the sermon at the funeral of Tony Boynton. Some of you may have met her. Uh, She came here a while for about two years when she moved to the Meadows but she was a stalwart of Christ Church, Sausalito, and a friend of mine. And when I was there, actually there were some people who came to her funeral that I knew from my time at, at Christ Church. They showed up there, and they're people I knew, and it was nice. And, of course, more to the point was that they were actually glad to see me, <laughs> which is not always true. I don't know if you've ever read, this is probably inappropriate, but I'll say it anyway, Barbara Pym. If you've ever read any of the novels of Barbara Pym, a a priest returns to his parish after being away for a long time, and they said, who is high church? He said, oh, Father Ludlow, how are you? And he said, yes, I'm a dog returning to his vomit. (laughs) We don't want that, do we? So I met a lot of people that I had known, and it was nice. And one of them was a friend named Bob Switzer, who at one time was the youngest city manager in the United States. He managed the town of Katati up in Sonoma County uh, for a couple of years. He was 28. And after that, he went to work for Jerry Brown, who was the governor of California the first time back then in the late 1970s and early 80s. So Bob and I and a few other people in Sausalito formed a community development, a nonprofit community development corporation for some stuff we wanted to do in the community. And Bob was one of the people who knew and understood. I never had known what an EIR was until I met him, right? So in the course of doing this and being in the processes in the wider community, uh, he would say to me over and over again when I would get anxious and worried and nervous, and that's something that I have never really gotten over. Anxious, worried, and nervous, right? Uh, And he would say, David, do not prejudge the process. Do not prejudge the process. I prejudge the process all the time. I simply can't resist it. But when I don't, the thing goes like the guy who's planted the seeds. The processes of God are at work. And what comes to fruition in Jesus' understanding of the parable is the fullness of the kingdom of God. 
that he has started out now and he has a small group of disciples and they are moving now both to believe in his words and works but also to go out and to speak to others about this, to share with them their, their experience, strength and hope. And to say that this is something that uh, we commend to you without prejudice. So this is about, you know, something to do with the processes of God and what that means. So that's parable number one. We're all, we all need to be open to that, you know, the processes of God. There was a, a, a famous writer on the spiritual life in our Anglican tradition in the late 17th and early 18th centuries named William Law, L-A-W, and he wrote a book called A Serious Call to the Devout and Holy Life. Now, this may not be, you know, a read for you all that you would, we had to, I had to read it in seminary. Uh, William Law was a non-juror, which meant that when William and Mary became the king and the queen of England after James II left, they would not sign the loyalty oath for William and Mary. And so they were removed from their parishes, or if they were a bishop, they were removed from their sees. A lot of them went up to Scotland. I think William Law became a private tutor. So in a serious call to the devout and holy life, he speaks of the importance of paying attention to the processes of God at work in you. Like the sowing of the seed. It's, it's a book to read about his better side. It's very serious. You don't want to read the little pamphlet that he wrote called On the Absolute Unwarrantableness of Stage Entertainment. <laughs> a true story. He did write it. The processes of God. So now we're to the mustard seed. The Franciscan missionaries in California planted mustard all over the place. You see it growing on the hills now. That's where it came from. So Jesus is speaking about the smallest of the seeds becomes a, a big shrub. The kingdom of God. And everybody can rest under its shade. So when we think about it, Sausalito's popped into my head again. Now, some of you who've been to Sausalito uh, know that there's a houseboat community. There's one at sort of the front of the town as you come in on, on Bridgeway. And then there's one as you're going out. That's gate five. Gate five is the most interesting of the houseboat communities. It is by no means posh, but uh, I had parishioners from gate five. I went down to gate five one Sunday a month, and there was a woman named Marion Saltman who was... Alan Watts, I don't know if any of you ever heard of Alan Watts. He was an Episcopal priest. He was dead by the time I was there. But Marion Saltman was his mistress, and she lived on the old Vallejo ferry that was beached there and kind of tilted like this. But she lived in the ferry. And there was a beautiful room in the ferry that we set an altar up in, and I celebrated the Eucharist there, and I baptized a lot of the kids 
that were at Gate 5. Stuart Brand, the author, uh, the author of the Whole Earth Catalog, uh, lived in Gate 5. There were a lot of very interesting people. Well, there was a book that got passed around at Gate 5 by someone named Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh. And it was called The Mustard Seed. And it was an extended uh, discussion of the Gospel of Thomas. Some people think that the uh, parable of the mustard seed, which appears in that Gospel, which is not canonical, it's not in the New Testament, is the more primitive tradition of the original that Jesus spoke. But he took, a, and he took the, the parable of the mustard seed and, as we say, ran with it, right? So uh, Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh had influenced an enormous number of people down there for good or ill. Ultimately, he moved to Oregon and bought a town and lived up in Oregon uh, with a bunch of his followers. I, that should have alerted me, you know, uh, about what the present situation on the ground is in 2015, because that's where it was beginning. All that stuff, it was there. Where now it's 24-7, we're all exposed to it because of the Internet and so forth. But then it was still in books and pe people like the gang that lived at, on Gate 5 were reading it and, and so forth. So that was interesting. But the mustard seed uh, growing into this tree that we can all shelter under. So what if that becomes now an understanding of the fullness of the kingdom of God? And we were to say to ourselves, what are some of the core values that we understand Christian people ought to practice uh, to help be cooperators with the bringing of this fully grown tree? So I'm going to suggest some. The first one is authenticity. Now, I understand authenticity in a particular way, and there's way more than one way to do that. But one is, you say what you mean, and you mean what you say. Don't just walk the walk, talk the talk, but walk the walk. Some people will look at somebody or, or they, 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 as they express themselves and they will believe that they're an authentic person. And they'll say that because I guess uh, they are what, what they appear to be. That may be one way to think uh, about that. Mother Morrison and I took a class in Berkeley in about 1996 or 97. Uh, and it was a class by a man named Wade Clark Roof who was then the drop-dead world expert on baby boomers and baby boomer spirituality. And he wrote a book called A Nation of Seekers. I've talked about this in sermons before. That's where he, he's a sociologist. He wasn't a historian or a biblical scholar or anything else. But he's a parishioner now at Trinity Episcopal Church in Santa Barbara. And he talked about... Um, somebody that he'd been following as a sociologist and a nurse, and he asked her one time, he said, um, well, what, what's your faith? What, what do you 
how do you describe what you believe? What do you call it? And she said, I call it Sheilaism. Her first name was Sheila. So, he was the first one that said, you know, uh, the next generation after us, Generation X, and there's Y, and then there's the Millennials. That's how we've begun to cut this up. Uh, Gen X and Gen Y people uh, uh, do not like inauthentic people. They don't. Now, I'm not so sure they're the absolute judge of what's authentic or inauthentic, but it is interesting that that's a, a value that looms large. And in some sense, we, we need to pay attention to that. The other thing is radical hospitality, the gracious gesture extended to all people, and that that's an important thing to do. And the, the, the third thing is mutuality, and I understand that as taking people seriously. You know, many years ago, there was a person at the sermon discussion at St. Luke's in the parish hall. And I don't know how the subject came up. Maybe we were talking about family of origin issues or something like that. And he said, when I was a kid growing up in Michigan, he was from like Ann Arbor or Ypsilanti or who knows where. He said, growing up in Michigan, my parents would say things like, well, you know the brewers, they eat garlic. <laughs> right? Now, that, that banged around and, and touched, you know, it was like a pinball machine. If you said that, you understood. You nodded. And you said, oh, my God. Or you could say, what's wrong with eating garlic? But then you were an outsider and you didn't want to be. Because it rang so true about that, well, that means there's a whole other lot of behaviors that uh, they're going to be willing to do and do that, that people like us just don't do. We don't do it. My next door neighbor, Doug Holmes, when he was 16, took a, took a voyage on Sterling Hayden's boat, his yacht, The Wanderer. And he went from San Francisco to... Tahiti, and he came back, and uh, he and I built surfboards to, a surfboard together, you know, one of the homemade ones, I remember that, and he came back from this, and his grandmother lived with his family, and she said to me, you know, you ought to go do something like this, I was about 15 then, and he was 17, you ought to take a trip by yourself, it's good for you to be exposed to this, get away from your family, go on some sort of a trip like this, do this sort of thing. I mean, Doug had come back with a tattoo, and this was 1961 or 62. <laughs> you know, it was a Tahitian tattoo, so it had a certain kind of cachet because there was a kind of primitive Polynesian quality to what it is. My son James has one that he got in Tahiti. So I went next door back home, and I said to my, you know, uh, Doug Holmes' grandmother said that I ought to go on something like the Wanderer on a trip like that. I ought to do with it. It would be broadening for me to do that. And he said, well, you know, David, Doug's grandmother is a free thinker. <laughs> Guess, do you think free thinker was a value to be lifted up? <laughs> or no? 
I mention this because the discount already comes from us internally. We look at somebody and bang, we never would say it if we're being polite or well-mannered, but we immediately say, well, that's, that's it for me with them. Or I may still have to associate with them because of the social pressures that are involved, but I know now that they eat garlic. <laughs> And the final one is compassion and mercy. You've heard me about this. I know there are many of you who disagree. I don't like the word empathy. I never have. And the word empathy is a new word. It, it, it comes from the 19th century. It's not old. And uh, we have many better and older words that uh, in one sense say the same thing. But empathy... Uh, comes from a German word, Einführung, which means to feel in. And it came out of the art critic community in Germany where you were to look at a, pic a painting or a work of art and you were to, to try and feel into what the artist had in mind and was feeling when they created this, this artistic work. There are two far better words. One is sympathy and the other is compassion. And we all ought to have compassion for one another and we all ought to practice mercy. We ought to understand that, uh, as I say over and over, when God's judgment and God's mercy collide, God's mercy trumps God's judgment. And there's ample biblical support for this. And that makes us understand more clearly that in the Hebrew Bible and in the Christian scriptures, more, in more than one place it said, we must be merciful because God is merciful. Don't you hope that? Don't you hope that God is merciful for you? And we believe it. So the mustard seed now grows this tree and we're under it, and we want to practice uh, some of these things. But I also think we need to say a word about the tree shades everybody. And so it has something to do with inclusion. That we're all welcome under the tree. You know? So all these things that I mention become then opportunities to practice in a way faithful to the gospel. You know? And what we believe about that are the processes of God. We mean progress, not perfection. So that's what we move towards. None of us are going to be able to move towards to become perfect. We can become mature. We can make progress. And then somebody's going to look at you maybe someday and say, how do I get what you want? How do I get what you have? That'd be, that's a nice thing, right? So this week, think about all these values of authenticity, radical hospitality, mutuality, compassion, and mercy. And uh, when we do that, I think we'll have made some progress. Amen. <laughs>